0: Welcome to another episode of Uncharted, the UN Watch podcast. My name is Hannah and I am the Morris v. Abram Fellow at UN Watch in Geneva, Switzerland. On June 13, 2022, UN Watch hosted a side event as the UN Human Rights Council's new Commission of Inquiry targeting Israel presented its first report. The remarks you will hear on this podcast were originally delivered at this side event during a panel of international legal and military experts discussing the 2021 Hamas-Israel war. Panel's first speaker was Colonel Richard Kemp. Colonel Kemp is the former commander of the British forces in Afghanistan, a counterterrorism expert, and an author.
1: I'm going to just speak briefly about a report that I was involved in writing for an organization called the High Level Military Group. The High Level Military Group, which I'm sure you've all heard of, is a group of 14 retired generals, admirals, air marshals, whose role really is to study conflict, modern day conflict, and learn lessons that are applicable across from one country to another. And that includes, of course, the war in Gaza. And we've conducted a number of studies into the Gaza conflict, as well as into the conflict and potential conflicts in Lebanon and elsewhere. And when I say retired generals, I'm talking about mainly retired chiefs of staff. For example, we have the former British Army Chief of Staff, we have the former Canadian Army Chief of Staff, the former Indian Army Chief of Staff. There are generals from around the world who in their own time go and visit countries such as Israel and learn and understand what happened so they can make recommendations. And we conducted a investigation during and immediately after the 2021 Gaza conflict and came up with a number of observations from that conflict, which I'm going to run through. Briefly now, first of all, the causes of the conflict, which obviously are, I'm not gonna go into detail about this because it's very complex, but obviously are presented very often as being the result of Israeli-inspired violence in Jerusalem, which Hamas was responding to. Whereas those of us who understand it know very well that the cause of this conflict was not Hamas defending Jerusalem by firing rockets at the Zionist entity. It was a power struggle between Hamas and Fatah surrounding the election process that was taking place, that was cancelled by Abbas because he reckoned that Hamas was going to win the election. And by firing rockets, obviously it was aimed at strengthening the hand of Hamas over Fatah in future issues. It's more detailed, and more complicated than that, of course, but that's in outline the reality. I just want to mention also the role of Iran in all this. Iran encouraged this conflict and it didn't just encourage it by funding Hamas and even more so Palestinian Islamic Jihad and providing arms for the organisations and sending Hezbollah members to encourage them when they may be flagging somewhat. It also deliberately and specifically encouraged this particular war and there are media reports that show how Iran did that. So Iran was playing a significant role behind the scenes in the conflict and they claimed to have established a Hezbollah on their behalf in fact claimed to establish a joint operation centre in Lebanon which included Hamas, Hezbollah and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, an arm of the Iranian government, to direct and coordinate operations against Israel in this conflict from which missiles not just fired from Gaza but also from Lebanon albeit relatively ineffectively. Hamas's strategy, I think probably you don't need to remind me of, remind you of this, but Hamas's strategy is one thing, and that's the destruction of the state of Israel. It's laid down specifically in their charter. They talk about it all the time. It's no secret. That's their aim, is to annihilate Israel and to turn it into an Islamic state. Hamas's operations, the way they conduct that, the way they go about that at the moment, is to initiate conflict at low level or at high level, such as we saw in May, they know they can't destroy Israel, they can't militarily, seriously impact Israel. But they also know they can do their best to isolate Israel in the international community by firing missiles, carrying out tunnel attacks, carrying out other forms of attacks against Israel, which will force Israel to react. And when Israel reacts, using Hamas human shield tactics, they ensure that there are civilian casualties which can be used as a weapon of war against the Israelis. If you would class Hamas as an army, it is the first army in history that has ever deliberately attempted to create casualties among its own civilian population for its military aims. Hamas's weapons and tactics in this conflict, pretty much the same as they have in previous conflicts, and this is a little bit like Groundhog Day here at the United Nations, because periodically Hamas trigger a war, periodically the United Nations convene a commission to condemn Israel for the war that Hamas has triggered. But as in the past, they've used tunnels, and the tunnels, I think, the underground tunnels of networking Gaza, which have been known as the Jihad Tunnels, were the main weapon of Hamas in this conflict. That was their main intention, because they expected to lure Israel on the ground into Gaza, not just from the air, they expected them to come on the ground. And those tunnels are to both ensure the safety of Hamas commanders, but also to have movement of fighters, logistic movement, etc. But primarily they're there to try and lure Israeli forces in and then be able to attack them from behind or from all directions from these tunnels. They fired about 4,500 give or take missiles at the Israeli civilian population, of which only 175 hit populated areas due to Israel's defenses above all. They launched six suicide drones against Israel, all of which were shot down. They attempted to launch a submersible to carry out an attack against Israel. That was destroyed by Israel as well. And they attempted a border attack tunnel, sending fighters under the border using one of their tunnels, which is a tactic they've used very often before. Also, they conducted a number of operations that prevented essential services from reaching the Palestinian people in Gaza such as they shut off the power to desalination plants and sewerage facilities, causing not just problems within Gaza, but also environmental damage on a large scale. They damaged 6 out of 12 power lines that Israel provides power to Gaza from. And when under UN negotiation with Israel, the Eretz crossing was opened to let in humanitarian aid, they then attacked that operation, killing two civilian aid workers and wounding six other people, including IDF soldiers who were protecting them. So it's not just attacks against Israel. These are service attacks against their own people. On the Israeli side, the Israelis refrained from attacking Hamas prior to this conflict, prior to the intensification of the conflict, deliberately carrying out limited response only to sporadic missile fire in the month preceding the conflict in order to avoid causing escalation and hoping to deal with the problem through international diplomacy. And during this conflict, Israel prevented every single attack that Hamas attempted to carry out with Iranian backing, except for a small percentage of rockets and some anti-tank fire. The reason that they were very successful in this conflict, Israel, in terms of protecting its people, really twofold. First of all, defensive, the Iron Dome. The Iron Dome, without the Iron Dome, a lot more Israeli people would have died and a lot more Palestinians in Gaza would have died because had it not been for the Iron Dome, which is actually a weapon that doesn't just protect Israeli civilians but protects Gaza civilians as well, had it not been for the Iron Dome, if these thousands of missiles had not been shot down, then they would have caused a lot of casualties and Israel would have had to go in very much harder and very much faster without being able to take the care they were able to take because of the shield of the Iron Dome. Secondly, and a very well-developed Israeli shelter system, early warning system, and drills. On the offensive side, the high-level military group concluded that Israel carried out unprecedentedly precise and precisely targeted destructive attacks against Hamas' systems. Not seen anywhere in war before at this level of precision, even in previous conflicts in Gaza. Israel has developed its tactics and capabilities and weapons to the extent that the precision they were able to use was absolutely unprecedented in order to preserve civilian life, both on the Israeli side and on the Gaza side. They carried out over 1,500 attacks against separate targets, and they neutralized 114 Hamas terrorists, including commanders. When I say neutralized, it's not clear, killed, wounded, whatever. And they destroyed 60 miles, more than 60 miles, of the tunnel system underneath Gaza, and that is assessed as being probably the majority of those tunnels, there may well be a lot more, but there's certainly more, but it was a significant amount. And when I tell you 60 miles plus was destroyed, it suggests that it's a hugely extensive network in which vast amounts of money that was provided mainly to support the population in Gaza was used on this purpose. Targeting by Israel, they only targeted known military objectives. They never once during the conflict deliberately targeted a non-military objective. Obviously in some cases there were side effects where for example a house was struck containing a military objective which contained also maybe a great deal of explosive which caused collateral damage beyond that but that wasn't the intention of course of Israel. They applied the laws of armed conflict not just as they're written but above and beyond, well above and beyond the requirements of the laws of armed conflict. They confirmed every target they struck with multiple intelligence sources. They took legal advice from their lawyers in the IDF before carrying out every attack, with very few exceptions. In some cases, attacks had to be personally authorized by the Chief of Staff if they were particularly controversial or particularly risk collateral damage, personally by the Chief of Staff of the Israeli Defense Force who authorized dozens of these attacks. They sent phone warnings, as Sila mentioned, to tell people to get out of the buildings they were in if they were about to be struck or to get out of the area. They carried out knock on the roof, which means deploying a low-caliber explosive, which causes a loud noise but doesn't kill people, to warn people if they didn't leave as a result of phone calls. They carried out real-time visual surveillance to confirm the evacuation of civilians from certain areas. And sometimes they allowed hours after a warning before a strike took place. The only occasions when They did not give such warnings when they were targeting high-value targets, and that particularly means senior Hamas commanders who, if you'd warned them, of course, they would be gone and that would seriously damage Israel's war effort, which was, of course, to a large extent to kill Hamas commanders. Just as a point of interest, there are many pieces of footage that you may have seen of civilians in Gaza taking photographs of buildings that were about to be hit from quite close to those buildings. Which suggests that they were warned, you know, they were obviously warned, but it suggests that they knew not only how precise, but also how little collateral effect it would have if they were right next to those buildings. That's something I don't think we've seen before. I won't go into detail. There were cyber operations attempted by Hamas, which were to try and jam the Iron Dome system, which Israel overcame. Just briefly on the casualties, there were 234, and some of these figures may be disputed. The figures I get are from the Merimit Intelligence Center, which probably provides the most reliable basis for casualty figures, but these are the latest ones I've seen from Merimit. 234 killed Palestinians in Gaza as a result of Israeli action. Of those, 114 belonged to terrorist organizations, and 11 more potentially belonged to terrorist organizations. On the Israeli side, Hamas killed 12 Israelis with rockets, wounded 352 and killed an Israeli soldier with an anti-tank missile attack. One notable casualty statistic is an event that caused the single most number of casualties in Gaza during the conflict was on the 16th of May when there was an airstrike on a tunnel which ran under a road. And Israel was very careful not to target the tunnels when they were attacking them in areas where they could cause a lot of collateral damage. But in this case, the tunnel collapsed. It had been built under the road and it also extended under houses, and the tunnel collapsed and houses collapsed in on the tunnel, so that was collateral damage and killing the largest single number. During the conflict, Hamas killed 21 of their own people by either misfires of rockets or rockets falling short that were aimed at Israel. They killed 21, and they killed 13 Israelis So they killed more of their own people in this massive attack than they killed Israelis, which is quite a telling thing. And when you look at the ratios, Israel killed 51.7% civilians and 48.3% fighters, which is, compared to other conflicts, and it's very hard to compare casualty rates in different conflicts, but compared to other conflicts, that is an extremely high rate of combatants to civilians killed. Hamas, in their attacks, remember, Israel killed 51.7% civilians, 48.3% (coughs) combatants. Hamas killed 92.3% civilians and 7.7% combatants. The only other thing I want to say, that's basically the summation of the report. It's available online. If you want to read the report, it's high-level-military-group.com. The only thing I would say is that what we found during our examination of the conflict was the direct opposite of what the United Nations Human Rights Council is alleging. Not just slightly different, but 100% different, where Hamas deliberately attempted as a policy to kill Israeli civilians and to lure Israelis to kill their own civilians. Israel did everything they possibly could, and far more than most other countries could even achieve, probably far more than any other country could achieve, in preserving the life of enemy civilians while being very effective at destroying their military infrastructure. And the kind of comments and the kind of analysis you get from the United Nations Human Rights Council does one thing above all. It encourages Hamas to maintain this policy of attempting to lure Israel and force Israel to kill its own people. Above all, That's what it does, therefore the UN Human Rights Council is guilty of perpetuating these conflicts, causing bloodshed, and this report will ensure there will be more of these types of attack.
0: Following Colonel Kemp's remarks, Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Korn offered his expertise. Lieutenant Colonel Korn is a distinguished professor of national security law at the South Texas College of Law, Houston.
2: I'd like to share my thanks to you for giving me the opportunity to speak and to offer a perspective that is not just mine, but really the perspective of a very similar high-level military command group that devoted a substantial amount of time reviewing the conflict in Gaza with the eye towards trying to draw lessons learned that would be relevant for future U.S. operations. So. Jinza, the Jewish Institute of National Security for America, sponsors a group of retired U.S. general officers and admirals to investigate and write reports on the conflicts in Israel. And they did so after the 2021 conflict. So that group I was doing the math a little bit last night, probably involved more than 150 plus years of hardcore operational military experience. Not lawyers, these were former battlefield commanders, senior intelligence officers, air operations commanders, et cetera. They spent a week in Israel, working about 14 hours a day, exploring every aspect of the operation they could explore to write a report and draw lessons learned. I was privileged to be the former military lawyer that contributed to that report, and that's really what I'd like to discuss today. In many ways, what I'm going to tell you is aligned with what my friend Colonel Kemp already told you. The most profound finding from their report was the tremendous disconnect between the reality and the perception of legitimacy of IDF operations. Legitimacy has been recognized in the Joint Doctrine for U.S. Military Operations as a potentially decisive aspect of military operations. And what we're doing here, what the Commission of Inquiry is doing, what all of you are interested in, what everything Colonel Kemp talked about, is a manifestation of that recognition, that you can win the battle tactically, and you can do it in a way that respects and complies with international law, But if the perception of your operations is illegitimacy, you've lost the strategic war. And Hamas figured that out long ago. They understand that. As a matter of fact, as one of our former colleagues on our report that we did in 2014 noted so eloquently, he said, as a retired major general, a former tank officer, I always understood information as a supporting effort to combat. What I learned studying Hamas is that they understand combat as a supporting effort to information. They don't care about winning the fight. They care about creating a narrative that will advance their cause. Now, what is the goal of that? The goal of that is to neuter what they understand is the much more significant combat capability of the IDF to achieve their military objectives. Because when you start to paint your enemy as illegitimate, it's going to create a pressure, a pressure to restrain your operations, a pressure to refrain from operations, a pressure to avoid striking targets that could have immense operational and tactical value because of the potential degradation of perceived legitimacy. And for the generals that were part of this report, what really jumped out at them was you had a truly binary equation of compliance and non-compliance with international humanitarian law. Everything they looked at told them that the IDF commanders and subordinate forces did an A or A-plus job in understanding and implementing their obligations under international humanitarian law. They were fighting an enemy that not only disregarded international humanitarian law, but actually used it as a weapon. Colonel Kemp talks about the willingness of Hamas to use their civilian population as potential casualties in order to win their strategic information narrative. I actually wrote an article about this about two years ago titled Indirect Civilian Targeting. The actual title is Beyond Human Shielding. Any international lawyer who's familiar with the rules of war you speak with will tell you that human shielding is a violation of international humanitarian law. But I've become convinced, and so did all of these generals, and I think Colonel Kemp would agree with me, that what Hamas does is one level beyond that in terms of illegitimacy and illegality. They're not using civilians to shield targets. That's bad enough. When you use a civilian to try and get your enemy not to attack, that's a pernicious violation of international humanitarian law. They actually want the Israelis to attack. They're using civilians to bait the Israelis to attacking high-value targets so that it does create civilian casualties. They're not trying to avoid the attack. They want the attack to occur. They know that the Israelis are going to face a dilemma, that when you put civilians amongst the highest-value targets, then what are we going to do? Inevitably, we're going to have to attack. So you have one side of the conflict that's doing everything within its capability to create civilian casualties on both sides of the forward edge of the battle line, whether it's in Israel or in Gaza, you have another side of the conflict that's doing everything that's feasible to mitigate the risk to the civilian population. The warnings, the tactics, the weapon systems. I mean, if you just think about it objectively, which I know is very difficult in this environment, but if you just think about it objectively, if you compare the civilian, the collateral damage and incidental injury to civilians from the 2014 conflict to the 2021 conflict, it is a remarkable reduction on the part of the Israelis. In 2014, the IDF was caught by surprise with the tunnels. They weren't prepared to deal with them. They realized that the only way they could deal with them was the old fashioned way, put their soldiers in the dirt of Gaza. And that required a combined arms ground maneuver operation in Gaza that was terribly destructive to the local infrastructure that created immense risk for the Gazan civilian population and immense risk for the IDF soldiers as well. What happens between 2014 and 2021? The capabilities of the IDF are enhanced substantially to give their commanders options that avoid the need to engage in close combat with your enemy, the type of combat that your enemy is trying to bait you into, the ability to identify the location of the tunnel, the development of weapon systems that can destroy the tunnel from a standoff capability. Now, all of this is a manifestation of an an institution that takes its obligation to come up with means, and means meaning weapon systems and tactics that actually mitigate civilian risk to comply with the international legal obligation to take constant care to mitigate the risk to the civilians in operations. This began in 2014. This is not just something that is manifested by issuing a warning before an attack or the knock on the roof. The training, the development, the intelligence, the weapon systems, all of that is designed to give Israeli commanders what they want which is the ability to achieve their operational and tactical objectives in a way that they can say, with good faith, was done to mitigate the risk to the civilian population. And the fact that the Israelis didn't have to put ground forces into Gaza is a manifestation of that commitment. That will be completely overlooked in this report, in my opinion. There will be no credit given to the resources and time and effort devoted to that endeavor. The same goes to the point that Colonel Kemp made about target identification. Compliance with the law in the conduct of hostilities is not that complicated. Do everything you can to identify the true nature of the target. Ensure that you're only deliberately attacking enemy personnel and enemy objectives, which can include civilian facilities that have been transformed into military objectives. Use tactics and weapons that are designed to achieve your objective in a way that mitigate the risk to the civilian population and refrain from conducting indiscriminate attacks. Four key points. And the generals that reviewed the operations of the IDF, check, 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 check. As a matter of fact, as Colonel Kemp says, one of the concerns reflected in our report is not so much that the Israelis did more than they needed to, but the concern that there will be a misperception that what the Israelis were capable of doing in Gaza is a model for what you would have to do everywhere else. And those commanders recognized that the level of effort that the Israelis engaged in to mitigate civilian risk would be unrealistic in many other conflicts. Even if there was a conflict against Hezbollah on the northern front, you just wouldn't have the same capability, the same strategic space, the same opportunity. And so we have to be very careful What the law requires is that commanders make good faith efforts to do what's feasible. But what's feasible changes from one operation to another, from one day to another. And the expectation that what you can do in Gaza is what you can do everywhere else is what concerned these commanders. Now think of the irony. You have the high level commanders in Colonel Kemp's group. You have these experienced commanders in the Jinza group. They're all reaching the same conclusion. We're worried that, the extensive efforts that the IDF made to mitigate civilian risk will be held up as a standard that can't be complied with in other operational situations. And then you have the rest of the world condemning Israel for not doing enough. There's an obvious disconnect. So the central theme of our report was how do you deal with this kind of delta between actual legitimacy and on that account There was one party to the conflict that earned actual legitimacy, actual compliance with the law, that was the IDF. And there was another party to the conflict that had total disregard for the law, which was Hamas and perceived legitimacy. Because legitimacy requires more than actual compliance. It requires the external community to recognize the commitment to the rule of law and the commitment to the obligations of international humanitarian law to do what's feasible to mitigate civilian risk? There's no easy answer to that. The efforts of UN Watch, the efforts of Colonel Kemp and his group, the efforts of Jinza, the efforts of any observer who kind of can separate all of the peripheral issues related to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or debate, and critique compliance with the laws of war in the conduct of hostilities as they are, in other words, separate all those other pieces, recognize that the law imposes an equality of application. right? You don't get a pass because you're the weaker enemy. That doesn't mean you're allowed to violate the law and refrain from the most common corrupting influence in critiquing military operations, which is what I've called effects-based condemnation, where you just look at the effects of an attack and you draw an ipso facto conclusion that whoever caused that effect must have been acting illegally, when in fact it's much more complicated. And it is complicated. As a matter of fact, at dinner last night I I made the point that, look, I have no objection to critics looking at the effects of combat operations and saying those effects have some relevance in deciding whether one side or the other followed the law. It would be illogical to ignore the destruction of civilian property or the killing of civilians when you're just trying to figure out whether the law was complied with or not. But it's rarely dispositive. It's rarely conclusive. And the common instinct is to simply treat those visual effects as conclusive proof of illegality. And what that does is exactly what Colonel Kemp noted. It incentivizes the worst conduct of the worst enemies. Because what you then realize is if you can create a visual perception of destruction of civilian property and death to civilians, you're 99% where you need to be to paint the other side as illegitimate and illegal. And that has a corrupting effect. Because in fact, if we're gonna critique compliance with international humanitarian law, what we have to do is approach it from an ex ante perspective, not a post hoc perspective. And that's the great iron here, isn't it? Colonel Kemp refers to Iron Dome. If we were to ask a different question, instead of asking how many civilians were killed and how many civilian buildings were destroyed, if we were to ask the question of attempted killing, how many civilians were attempted to be killed, how many civilian buildings were attempted to be destroyed, the ledger would be off the chart against Hamas. And yet, because the Israelis were effective at neutralizing those deliberate attacks against the civilian population and civilian property, because Hamas was inept in their efforts to achieve those objectives, somehow we think, well, obviously the Israelis must have been the evil actor here because look at the effects they had in Gaza. In fact, what we need to focus on is not the effect of an attack, but the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the attack judgment prima facie. That is what the law regulates. When Colonel Kemp was a commander, he could do everything right in terms of making a lawful judgment and something could be wrong that he could not have known about. That doesn't mean he acted illegally or he could be fighting an enemy that's trying as best it can to kill civilians and is just inept in the effort and fails. That doesn't mean they're not the illegal actor. So ask this question. How many civilians did Hamas attempt to kill? How many civilian buildings did Hamas attempt to destroy? That's the ultimate question, because the attempt is the manifestation of the illicit judgment. So one of the things that I think is necessary in order to fight this legitimacy battle is to explain to international audiences what the law really demands of commanders. The law does not demand that you're right all the time. The law demands that you make reasonable judgments under the circumstances. And the best, I think, circumstantial evidence of whether you're dealing with commanders that take their obligation under the law seriously or not are all the efforts they make before the attack is launched to verify the true nature of the target, warn the civilian population, let the civilian population evacuate, etc., etc. et cetera. What military lawyers put under this rubric of <coughs> precautions in the attack to mitigate civilian risk. If we look at that, if we look at that as circumstantial evidence of good faith commitment to the law, again, the ledger favors the Israelis exponentially. So the fact that the Israelis were able to achieve their tactical and operational objectives in an 11 day campaign that did not involve the need for ground maneuver operations that resulted in approximately 100 to 150 civilian casualties is truly remarkable. That is a remarkable outcome when you're fighting an enemy, one, in the most densely populated urban area in the world, two, that has no respect for the law, three, that embeds its military objectives among the civilian population. So take two examples. Two operations that got the most notoriety were, one, the attack on the tunnel system that resulted in the collapse of the civilian buildings and the Al-Jabar Tower, okay? What was remarkable from the perspective of our commanders and from my perspective was, why wasn't anybody asking a prima facie question? Why were there tunnels under those civilian buildings? Why were they there? Nobody disputes that they were there. Nobody disputes that they were built by Hamas. Nobody disputes that they had military purpose. Why was Hamas using a building it knew was being used by international journalist organizations for a high-value electronic warfare effort to degrade Iron Dome? Now, when I was a military lawyer, if Colonel Kemp had come to me and said, we've identified a facility in a building that's being used to develop an electronic warfare capability to jam Iron Dome, And he asked me how high value a target that was. That would probably be higher than the enemy commander. That's the highest value target. Because if you degrade Iron Dome, not only do you endanger the civilian population of Israel, you are going to compel a much more aggressive military action to neutralize the threat of those rockets and missiles. So high value target. Then he says to me, I'm okay with letting the people that are in there evacuate. I'm okay with that. I can tolerate that. I can issue a pre-attack warning that makes sure everybody's out, including the enemy that's using it. I'll take that risk in order to protect the civilian population. And then he were to say to me, do you think that having identified the target confirmed what it's being used for and getting civilians, the opportunity to evacuate and using a precision guided munition that will only destroy that building. Do you think by doing that I'm complying with my obligations under the law? The answer would be, of course. But nobody asked the fundamental question, why did Hamas turn that building into a target? That was the illegality. That was the effort to use not only civilian property, but civilian property they knew was being used by news organizations to create a shielding effect. And yet, when the IDF destroyed that building, they didn't kill one civilian, not one. Now, how that's a failure, how that manifests a failure to respect the rules of war is perplexing to me, perplexing to Colonel Kemp, perplexing to any commander who's had to make these difficult decisions of balancing the need to achieve your military objective against the risk to the civilian population. Part of this battle for legitimacy is twofold. Number one, reject and fight back against effects-based condemnation. Right. It's too easy. And interestingly, we even see it happening now in the Ukraine-Russian conflict. Right. I think that there is evidence of pervasive Russian violation of the rules of war, but not every civilian building that's destroyed in Ukraine has been an illegal attack. There are some civilian buildings that are being used by Ukrainian forces. We have to be careful about jumping to conclusions that images prove illegality. And the more complex the operation, the less likely that is. And the more you're facing an enemy that's deliberately trying to embed its assets in the civilian population, the less likely that is. So that's one point we have to emphasize. The other is, I think we have to constantly remind the world that people who make these decisions are not robots and they're not sociopaths. The commanders in the IDF at every level, from the senior level down to the lower level, They're human beings, and anybody who suggests that they are indifferent to causing civilian casualties, even when they were unavoidable operationally, offends me. In my career, I've worked for too many commanders. I never worked for a commander who I felt was a sociopath, who I felt enjoyed the idea of killing. It was was bad enough to have to live with the consequence of killing your enemy. That's not an easy thing to live with. But when you have to make a decision that you know will result in the loss of civilian life, that's even harder to live with. Anybody who thinks that the commanders who made those decisions are cavalier or indifferent when their nation is providing power and water to the same civilian population is not credible. And we have to constantly remind people that these are good men and women who come up in a culture that values human life, that values morality. This is more than just law. Good commanders understand that their job in battle is to help their subordinates navigate the moral hazard of having to take life on command, but also come out of that miserable situation being able to live with the consequences of what they did. And guess what? It's the law that provides them the framework to help them do that. So I reject the idea that you can see widespread indifference to the obligations of the law in IDF operations. I think if you want an example of it, look at the enemy. The enemy doesn't care about the law because the enemy doesn't care about anything other than winning this information battle. So if we remind people of the fact that you have leaders who understand their moral obligation and you have objective evidence over and over again that manifests commitment to the rule of law then maybe in those margins of people who are still subject to being influenced you start to explain to them why what they see doesn't always indicate the reality of what happened on the ground and then we can start looking at the other evidence that proves you have manifestations of good faith at every level in the operation and that's what deserves to be given credit, not condemnation.
0: Thank you for listening to Uncharted, the UN UM Watch podcast. See you next time.